All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome, wonderful day. And Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We thank you that your word is living, it's active, it's true. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Father, pour your love into our hearts in Jesus that we would willingly come to you because you give us eternal life. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Well, welcome to the church at Woodbine. It is a pleasure seeing each and every one of you all here today. Those worshiping online, we are so glad that you've joined us. Uh, Real quick, I just want to thank Stevie and Jen for leading in worship. Uh, As we were worshiping, I was just imagining, because that's my youngest brother. I thought, man, I never thought in a million years that we would actually be leading a worship service together. So I'm just very grateful to the Lord Jesus for opening those doors. So thanks for driving down from East Tennessee and uh, leading worship for us today. Before we dive into scripture, real quick review, we are talking about becoming students, masters of God's word. And I heard a phrase a long time ago that we should be, uh, we should be students of many books and masters of one book, and that is God's word. And just real quick, last week, I talked a lot about, we talked a lot about just about how to read and study God's word. And I encouraged all of us, and I'm going to scoot this table up here close. I want to encourage all of us, if you do not do this, Get a journal book. You can buy this book. It's like two bucks at Walmart, $1.50 at Walmart, or even at one of the office stores. But I want to encourage you, and I, I shared this with you last week. If we read, if we read 15 minutes a day, God's word, we will read the whole Bible in one year, just 15 minutes. And the average American spends three to six hours a day on their phones, on their screens, on their tablets, on their computers for just personal stuff. It doesn't even include work. But I'm telling you, 15 minutes, one chapter a day, and then with your journal book, write down one verse out of that chapter you read. Write down one verse that speaks to you, and then write one paragraph why. And do it every day. And if you blow it and you go two weeks without reading your Bible, don't kick yourself in the seat. Get back up and start over again. But pull out 15 minutes a day because the number one excuse that Christians have for not reading God's word is they don't have time. Well, we looked at last week, most of us will spend three to six hours a day on our screens for personal time. I think we can find 15 minutes a day. And if you really don't care about God's word, ask the Lord, Lord, stir in my heart a hunger and thirst for you, a hunger and thirst for your word. But I want to challenge all of us 15 minutes a day, one chapter, one verse, and ask that question, why? Oh, and you need to get a coffee mug that says, all I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. So don't forget that either. We're diving in. Noel, or Noel, Leo read for us today, John chapter 5. So if you open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and we only read three, two verses. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. And I'll have to ask for forgiveness. I stole this Bible from the front pew because I gave my Bible away while I was up in the Boundary Waters this past week. So I don't have my preaching Bible anymore. So I'm going to have to find a new one. But John chapter 5, verse 39 and verse 40. Today we're going to study and look at the right way to study God's Word. The right way to do it. Because right here it says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they poured over the Scriptures. 
but they were unwilling to come to Jesus. There are many people who know the scriptures inside out. I will never forget when I was living in Europe, traveling on a train, I had my Bible open and I was reading it and there was a man sitting right across from me. He was two feet away and he was German. He was probably in his early 50s. And after about 20 minutes, he asked me, he says, do you like reading God's word? I said, I love it. And then Asmus said, do you read God's word? He says, oh yeah, a lot. In fact, I'm fluent in Greek and I've been studying and teaching theology for years. I was like, oh, so you're a Christian? He says, no. I'm not. I can't believe this stuff, but it's my career. And that didn't make sense to me. He knew the Bible inside out, yet he did not believe it. May we not be like the Pharisees and be unwilling to come to Jesus. Before we dive into this passage, I got a fun story to share. While living in Europe, I worked at a youth hostel. I was on staff there during the summer months. And there was a week where I was the, what we called the watchy man, where I had to stay up all night and had to make sure that no one broke into the place, I had to make sure that no one was doing any shenanigans in the youth hostel. And there were about 200 people staying overnight in this youth hostel. It was like four stories up, tons of men, young men, tons of young women. They were travelers. And about four in the morning, I was in charge of prepping breakfast. Now, that's a great idea. The manager putting me in charge of breakfast for about 200 people pancakes. I never made pancakes in my life. I was like 19 years old. So I pulled out the recipe book that was on the shelf. And the person, my manager showed me where the recipe book was. So I pulled it out. I opened it up and there were the directions right there. So I made a vat that was about this big around and about that tall full of pancake mix. And I started making pancakes and people were starting to wake up and I'm in charge of making pancakes for 200 people. And the first set of pancakes, they don't look right. And they taste awful. I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I do? And I tried another one, another one. And finally I was like, scrap this. We are not doing pancakes. So we made French bread. But I used up all the bread for the day. The next morning at 4 a.m., I was like, I'm going to do this right this time. I know I, did, I know I followed the directions correctly. So I pulled out that same recipe book, opened it back up, same thing. And I started praying because we didn't have any more bread. I was like, what am I going to do? Because like these people, these travelers, they've been promised a breakfast. And at the door, there was a knock. It was the bread guy with more bread, more French toast. So I talked to my manager that day. I said, what is the deal? Like this recipe, I'm following it very meticulously in two nights, two mornings in a row, the wrong pancakes. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot to tell you, this is the wrong recipe for pancakes. I was like, whoo. I was like, what's your fault? We just have destroyed all the eggs for the week. I was reading the recipe correctly, but I was following the wrong recipe. There is a right and wrong way to read scripture. Now, I hope this doesn't scare you. But there are so many things about God's word that we can get confusing. And if we're honest, we can open this book up and we're just like, man, like, where do you start? Do you start in Genesis and you read Genesis and you read Exodus and Leviticus? Or if you might say Leviticus, then you get to Numbers and you get to Deuteronomy, something, you know, and you might go to Job and Palms and some of these other books in the Old Testament where you're just like, what in the world? It doesn't make sense. Real quick about this book. It took over 1600 years to write this book. 
It was written in three different languages on three different continents by over at least 40 different authors. And they all point to one person. I'm going to say that again. It took over 1,600 years for this book to be written, three different languages, basically Hebrew and Greek, but a little bit of Aramaic, on three different continents by at least 40 different authors. And they all point to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Every single book in this Bible, and Bible basically means a collection of books. There are 66 books in this Bible And the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth, the B-I-B-L-E. And right here in John chapter 5, let's open up. Let's stand back up again before y'all get too comfy in that seat. John chapter 5. Open your Bibles, turn on your smartphones. If you got one, it'll be on the screen. John chapter 5. These two very simple verses. This is what God's word says for us. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. There are three main points that I want to cover in this passage. You all may be seated, by the way. There are three main points that we're going to cover on this passage. The first one is this, pour over the scriptures. The second one is the scriptures testify about Jesus. And then the third one is this, it's a question, willing to come to Jesus? Willing to come to Jesus. The first one, pour over the scriptures. Right here, Jesus is telling the Pharisees because, see, they're in this huge argument. They're in this huge discussion because what had happened, the context of this story right here, the context of these two passages is this. Jesus goes into, he's in Jerusalem, and it's a Sabbath. And what does Jesus usually do on the Sabbath that just really grinds against the religious leaders? He's usually doing miracles, signs, and wonders. He's working on the Sabbath. And he comes up, there's this huge pool, and there's all these sick people, these crippled people, these blind, deaf, mute, these people that can't walk. They're all around the pool. Because every once in a while, the waters would stir. And according to tradition, that was an angel stirring the waters. And the first one to get into the water would be healed. So all these people who need a healing are there. And there's a man who's been crippled since birth. at age, He's 38 years old. And Jesus comes up to him. This man does not know who Jesus is. This man is not asking for a miracle. But Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? And the man, he pulls out all these excuses. There's no one to help me get into the water. He's doing this huge, woe is me, if only this and if only that. He doesn't answer Jesus' question, which always speaks to me powerfully. He's a victim. Now, all of us are true victims. And many of us, unfortunately, use our victimhood as an excuse not to love and follow Jesus. It's just the truth. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? He doesn't answer Jesus' question. He makes excuses. Jesus tells him, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man is healed. Now, this man has no idea who Jesus is. Jesus didn't introduce himself. He healed him and walked away. So this man, is he's like, man, I can walk. He's carrying his mat which is against the the tradition of the Jewish leaders that's working on the Sabbath. And he's stopped by some of the Pharisees. Hey, you're working. You're carrying your mat. You're not supposed to do that. Legalism will always kill. Why are you carrying your mat? Well, I don't know. Some man came up to me and asked if I wanted to be healed. They told me to get up and my legs were made new and I can walk. And they get in this huge argument. Well, who is this man who healed you? He's like, I don't know. 
Later on that day, Jesus introduced himself to this man who he healed. He says, you see, you're healed. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And they talk for a while. And that man who is healed, he goes back to those religious leaders. He says, it was Jesus who healed me. Well, that's more, more proof for the Pharisees that they need to do something with this Jesus because he is breaking their traditions on the Sabbath. He's breaking God's law according to them. So they start arguing. They find Jesus and they start arguing with him. And you guys can read the whole chapter. And Jesus and the Pharisees are talking about life and death, eternal life and judgment. The gospel is found in verse 24 where Jesus says, and I'll read it. It won't be up on the screen, but Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not become under judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the gospel right there. And they go on and on, and Jesus begins to confront the Pharisees about their unbelief, their disobedience, and their unwillingness to come to him. And then he says in verse 39, that's what we've read twice already, one in Spanish and one in English. And this is the first point. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had what we call the Old Testament. But it was, for them, it was their holy book. It was their scriptures. It was their Bible. They, most of them probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. The whole thing. Think about it. Think of the dedication that these Pharisees had. Many of them really, they loved God. They wanted to serve the Lord. They wanted to seek after his face. At least they thought they did. And as you read the Gospels and especially the book of Acts, many of them did come to know the Lord eventually. But Jesus tells them, and it's almost an encouragement, you pour over the scriptures. Now, I love that imagery. Think of being of something poured over like a cup overflowing. What does that look like? Meaning that they pour over the scriptures where they're studying it, they're meditating on it, they're thinking about it, they're talking about it. That seems like an encouragement, does it not? But that metaphor of pouring over the scriptures. And Jesus says, because you think you have eternal life in them. You know, growing up, I went to a Bible church, an amazing church. It no longer exists. It closed its doors about five years ago. And there were many great things about the home church I grew up in. But their trinity, unfortunately, was the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And sometimes this very book can become an idol to us. And sometimes the very God's word can become an idol to us. And we make this out to be our God instead of the book that this, instead of the God that this book points us to. And I know I'm walking out on thin ice there. But many times we can miss the forest for the trees. And many times we can put our trust in ourselves and our ability to interpret God's word instead of trusting in him to understand his word. Now, some of my friends in Mexico who weren't believers, they would use this very passage to say, you see, I shouldn't read God's word. The traditional Roman Catholic church, everything was in Latin for centuries. 
and they discouraged the laity, the congregation, to read God's word because they would interpret it wrong. May we be like the Pharisees on one hand. May we pour over the scriptures. But may we learn from them as well the error of their ways. And we'll look at it here in a minute. The second point is this. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. Jesus declares that God's word, and this is point number two, the scriptures testify about Jesus. Do you know how many Old Testament prophecies there are about the Messiah? Anybody have an idea? There's over 300. And the probability of Jesus, who lived on this earth, fulfilling all 300 of those prophecies is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That's a 1 with 17 zeros after it. It's basically impossible, unless an impossible God, an eternal, all-powerful God, does that impossible. The scriptures, they all testify. Remember what I said? Over a 1,600-year period in three different languages by 40 different authors. And every single one of these 66 books, they point to one person. We're going to look at just three of the 300 prophecies about the Messiah. The first one is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. If you want to open your Bible, Genesis is the very first book. It's after the index. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10. This is way at the beginning. And this is when Jacob, who is the father of the 12 brothers, and Joseph being the second youngest, if you know that story, when Jacob is on his deathbed, he prophesies over his 12 sons. And this is his prophecy. It's about the Messiah, but this is his blessing over Judah, the fourth oldest. Okay? There's only 70 Israelites living on the planet. They're not even a nation yet. They have no rulers. They have no king. This is hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. This is before they are even established as a kingdom. And look at what Jacob declares over Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter signifies king. Or the staff from between his feet, the staff, the rod, the shepherd, the leader, the guide, the comforter, the protector. Until he whose right it is to come, right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Now, there's like four prophecies in this one verse here. The scepter, that's the king. Who is the king of kings? Jesus. The, the, the staff, the shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? Who is the great shepherd? Jesus. Until he whose right it is who comes. Well, that's Jesus. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is a descendant of David. David is part of the tribe of Judah. And the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Jennifer was talking about that around the throne are the four creatures, living creatures and the elders and a host of angels. And then there'll be a people group from every tribe, country, language, race, and nation. All peoples will bow the knee to King Jesus one day. That was written. That was declared centuries before Jesus came on this earth. A second one, Isaiah chapter 53, 
verses 5 and 6. You guys might know this one. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And he was he, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Written 700 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And this is proclaiming Jesus' death, sacrifice, shed blood, so that we may be forgiven. This is not magic. This is God's word for God's people. The third one we'll look at is in Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, written almost 700 years before Jesus was born on this earth. Now, Jesus has always been. He is the second person of the Trinity. This is what Micah prophesied. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it's the name of a little town. You guys might know it as Bethlehem. You are small. Oh, Bethlehem was just a tiny little podunk town, small among the clans of Judah. Oh, it's a tiny little town in the clan and the tribe of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over all of Israel for me. Okay, there's two prophecies from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Jesus is ruler of all. His origin is from antiquity. The Hebrew meaning there is his origin is eternal. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Think about it. You see, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they did, they poured over the scriptures. They longed to be right with God, but they were misinterpreting the scriptures. We're going to look at why here in a second. But the second point for us today is all of God's word points to one person. They testify about Jesus. We read God's written word to encounter the living word. I'm going to say it again. We read the written word to encounter the living word, not just to acquire knowledge, not just to have all of our answers correct in Sunday school, not just to walk around with the pride and arrogance of, oh, I know, but it's so we can encounter Jesus. This is his love letter to us. We should all be masters of this book. The third point is this, willing to come to Jesus Jesus, man, he, I wish I could be more like Jesus because I'm such a people pleaser that sometimes I struggle speaking tough love and tough truth to people because I don't want to be offensive. Jesus was the most bold and yet gentle human to ever live. And he's rebuking these Pharisees. He kind of is encouraging them. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And they do, they testify about me but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Now, if you really want to open up a can of worms about Reformed theology and all that stuff, we can go for it. Is it Wesleyan? Is it Reformed? Like, do we have freedom of choice? Is it all predestination? Blah, 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 blah. We'll figure that out when we get to heaven. But one of the things that this speaks to me powerfully on is that we do have a choice. 
God has given us one of the greatest gifts we could ever have, and that's the freedom of choice. We all chose to come today. You younger people, maybe you didn't have a choice, and mom and dad made you come today, right? Yeah. But we have choices each and every day. And Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees in a very humble, bold, loving way. You guys, you pour over the scriptures, you know it inside out, but you're unwilling to come to me and I'll give you eternal life. The couple verses before in verse 37 and 38, one of my questions is if the Pharisees and religious leaders, if they had the whole Old Testament memorized, if they knew the Bible inside out, how could they have missed it so badly with Jesus? How could they have missed it? I mean, they crucified him. And there he is fulfilling all the prophecies. Well, there are several reasons. Two of them are right here in verse 38 and verse 37 and 38. Look at what Jesus says. It's just a couple verses up. The father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you have not seen his form. Out of all their study of the Old Testament of the scriptures for them, they never heard the Father's voice. Why? Well, verse 38, you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. It's for unbelief. They studied the scriptures day in and day out, but they did not believe. They had no faith. Jesus later on in chapter 10 tells the Pharisees, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the works I'm doing because the works I'm doing prove that I am the Messiah. Yet because of their unbelief, they studied the scriptures, but it says your word, the word is not residing in you. You can pour over all the scriptures, but if we don't hear the Father's voice, if we don't believe. In other passages all throughout the Gospels, there's many other reasons why the Pharisees missed it. Jesus called them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, arrogant and prideful, self-righteous, self-centered, using God's word as a club and a weapon to manipulate and control the people. Those are all reasons why the Pharisees missed it. They were arrogant. They were prideful. They were self-righteous. They were self-serving. They were self-seeking. They were hypocrites. They refused to believe God's word. And they refused to submit themselves to God's word. Do you remember last week we talked about the bishop's mitre, the funny hat that many of the bishops wear, and it symbolizes what? God's word. We put it on our heads. That means we submit to it. Or you can put it on the floor, which I won't do. And then we stand on God's word. All symbolic. Our lives, when we come to his word, Do we come to God's word to critique it? Or do we come to his word to encounter Jesus and allow his voice, his word to speak to us? 
there's a huge difference of heart attitude and heart posture. Again, the third point, unwilling or willing to come to Jesus. Are you willing to bow the knee to Jesus? Open your heart, open your mind and say, Jesus, whatever you tell me, I will submit to you. I will surrender to you. I will follow you. I will obey you. As we read God's word, when we encounter and hear the Father's voice, may we listen and not only listen, but may we obey. And when we sin, may we obey the God's word and confess our sins, surrender to him, and allow Holy Spirit to speak through us and to us. So what does that mean for us? Now I need to look at my notes. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they knew the scriptures and they poured over them. And Jesus affirms that the scriptures, they point and testify about him. But the religious leaders, their greatest mistake was their pride, arrogance, and disobedience and unbelief. So for us, how do we understand Scripture the right way? How do we read Scripture the right way? The first one is this. We've got to take the whole counsel of Scripture. There's, it's very easy to take Scripture out of context, to pull this verse here to justify our lifestyle, to pull this passage over to justify a belief. But we've got to take from Genesis all the way to the Revelation, and everything in between. We've got to use the whole counsel of Scripture. The second thing, and this is important, is we've got to understand the history, context, and original meaning of what Scripture is saying. For example, I've got a picture of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus talks about beware of the Pharisees because they're like wolves in sheep's clothing. Is this a Pharisee right here? Is it? No. You see, Jesus used hyperbole and imagery. And we have to understand, what does a wolf in sheep's clothing mean? It means that someone, a lot of us know this, someone comes disguised as one thing, but they're really something else to destroy us. You see, Scripture in Scripture, there's history, there's law, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there are letters written, there's also the Gospels, and then there's prophecy. Brett knows that he's teaching the book of Revelation right now, one of our science school classes. It's easy, isn't it? Oh, it's so easy. You know, there's like seven major interpretations of the book of Revelation. And all the church is just in total agreement with it, right? And the book of Psalm, the Song of Solomon, it's a love letter between King Solomon and one of his wives. And in chapter 4, Solomon describes his wife. And here's a literal, a literal picture of Song of Solomon chapter 4. Let me read a little bit of it to you if I can find the Song of Solomon. It's after Proverbs, Song of Psalms. Let's see if you can figure this out. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. 
Your lips are like a scarlet cord and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. And can you see it? Look at her neck. It's like a tower. I mean, it's kind of, go look it up. Now, this is poetry right here. It is vital for us as we read the scripture to understand what type of genre it is, to understand its context, to understand its original meaning. Because scripture will not mean something different than what it was originally meant for. To understand the parables many times are hyperboles because see, when Jesus taught, one of the things he taught, and unfortunately, people have done it. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I've read reports of people actually doing that and saying, well, that's what Jesus told me to do. We have to understand the original meaning, the original context, the historical context, and then we can apply it to our lives. Now, that might seem really complicated and really overwhelming, especially when we look at this huge book written over 1,600 years span, three different languages, over 40 different authors. It can be overwhelming. But let me tell you, as I encouraged all of us last week, 15 minutes a day, one chapter a day, one verse a day, five days a week. If you begin to do that, you will begin to digest God's word. And if we come with a humble heart, I submit to God's word. I'm going to let his word speak to me. And I'm going to humble myself and let him speak to me. You will see over weeks and months time that you're going to encounter Jesus. Your love for him will grow. You'll begin to discern and hear his voice and his word will abide in you. But our heart attitude must be of humility and be willing to come to King Jesus. You see, we read the written word to encounter the living word. Let us stand. Jennifer and Steve, if y'all can come forward. Let us stand. We're going to pray. But I want to encourage you, if you really don't care about this book, I want to ask you, Pray to your heavenly father, our heavenly father, to stir in you a hunger and passion for his word. If there's something that God has already spoken to you about and you've said, no, don't be like a Pharisee. Come to him willingly in obedience. If there's something you're reading and you don't understand, ask your small group leader. Come to me. You can come to Johnny, Miss Lorne, Mr. Wes. Ask us. Ask your spouse. Ask your roommate. We don't have to walk this path alone. But may we truly be known as the people of the book, reading his word to encounter Jesus each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome day. Jesus, may you stir in our hearts a passion for your word, a passion for you. May we be people of the book. May we surrender ourselves and may we follow you with all of our heart, mind, body, soul. So, Father, stir in us a compassion and a hunger and a thirst for your word. May we pour over it, seeing you, Jesus. And may we be willing to come to you and drink the water you give. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen.
Johnny and I will be standing over here. If you want prayer, need prayer, if you've got questions, we'd love to pray and talk with you. Let us worship.